You're listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message at 11 a.m. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. To learn more, visit mtcarmeldemarest.com or facebook.com forward slash mtcarmeldemarest. Thanks for listening. ...and do God's will when we neglect God's word. Real simple. I want to know, I want to know, but I don't want to pick up that book and find out. Everyone seems interested in knowing God's will, but not interested in devoting themselves to the Bible. I think that's why there's a lot of ignorance about what God's will is for our lives. In today's Bible passage, in these two verses we're going to look at, the Apostle Paul elaborates the supreme value of the Bible. And I just want to begin our time together by asking a simple question, what is the Bible? What is this book? that we're toting around or scrolling through on our devices. Let's read 2 Timothy chapter 3, and let's just start in verse 16. The Apostle Paul, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes this, All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. What is the Bible? The very first thing that I see here, and you can write this down in your notes, the Bible is God's written word. The Bible is God's written word. Why did no one gasp? Do you not understand what an outrageous claim that is? I just told you that this book is the written word of God himself. We should fall out of our pews. You should check and see if I'm insane. What does it mean to say that the Bible is the written word of God? The first sub-point, I want you to write this down. We are claiming that God is the author God is the author. Do you see here in the text, in the first part of that verse, all Scripture is, what does your translation say? All Scripture is inspired. The Greek word literally is God-breathed. All Scripture is God-breathed. Now, I want you to think about the act of speaking itself, me and you speaking to one another. When the the speech act occurs, it occurs because air comes from the lungs through the vocal cords and then is articulated by our tongue and mouth and out the mouth to to hear the verbal sound that you hear. I want you to notice this. Where does the voice or the sound ultimately originate from in the speech act process? Where is it? In the lungs with our air Now, again, I'm not talking about the thought process because some of us don't think before speaking anyways, right? But I'm talking about the physiological act of speaking. Here's what I want you to think about. What we're saying here is if all Scripture is God-breathed, that it begins here in, so to speak, figuratively, the lungs of God, what we're saying is when we preach, teach, and read this Bible, we're saying God is speaking to us. What a claim! 
I know so many Christians that ask the question, how can I hear God speaking to us? Read that book out loud. He has spoken to us, and it's been written down in white, black, and red. My point is, this Bible, ultimately, God used men, their personalities. We can talk about the type of inspiration or the instrumentality by which God conveyed His Word. But I want you to see this. What Paul is claiming to us is the source of this book is ultimately God Himself. Now, what does that mean? What's the significance? Are we just here to go, okay, that's a point of doctrine we should believe in? No, it has a very practical relevance to to our lives. Here's the second thing. Because God is the author, number two, the Bible has God's authority. The Bible has God's authority. Ladies and gentlemen, if this book has come, so to speak, from the lungs of God, and God is the highest potentate, right? There's no one more sovereign than He is. He rules over and overrules all. He created you in His image. He has given you instructions for your life. The Bible also speaks there will be a day in which you and I stand before God and give an account of the way we lived our life. Do you not see how this book becomes of utmost importance? Because whether we lived our lives according to this book or we neglect this book, has our entire, entire eternity at stake. God's authority is running through this book. And so I'll go ahead and let you know the practical implication is that this book demands your obedience because it ultimately comes from God Himself. So that's the first part of what the Bible is. The Bible is... God's written word. But there's more. And I love this next part because we, we, we get so caught up in inspiration and theories concerning inspiration. We miss the next thing that Paul says what the Bible is. So notice what it says. Verse 16, all scripture is inspired by God. Or as I said, God what? Breathed. That's the first part of the Bible. That's the first thing to think about. But the second thing is equally important. And is what? What does your translation say? Profitable or useful? Number two, the Bible is useful. The Bible is useful. I don't have anything wrong with the word profitable. I'm just I'm trying to think of how we may approach that. We think of profit. We think of material gain. I'm not saying that the Bible, if you read the Bible and do what it says, you'll be ultra rich. That's not what we mean by profitable. We mean in the sense of it's useful to us. Now think about this and the irony of that statement. I can't tell you how many people bemoan the scriptures that they are completely irrelevant. No, we've become irrelevant. And what I mean by that is if the creator of the universe has something to say, he doesn't say it randomly. Please understand, God doesn't mince words. He's not sitting on his throne in heaven going, boy, it sure be nice to talk to somebody. If he has expressed anything, if any air has come from his lungs to convey a message to you, you need to think it like this. You're crossing the street and a Mack truck's barreling down on you and God shouts. It is written for your instruction, for your benefit. That's the kind of book that you're holding. God is not arbitrarily coming up with things for humanity to do. 
They're necessary expressions of His good will towards you. So they're useful. This Bible, I need you to understand this, if God is speaking to you, it is inherently relevant and useful. It's not the opposite way. We tried to make the Bible relevant. How could a man make the Bible more relevant than the God of the universe? I do not understand that. So what is it useful for? That's the question. It's useful for what ends. This verse is wedged between two verses that explain it. Look at verse 15. Go up to verse 15. This is the primary use of the Word of God. Look at verse 15. He's talking to a young pastor, Timothy. He says, Timothy, you know that from infancy, as a toddler, you have known the sacred scriptures. Now, he doesn't mean he was born with this innate knowledge of the Bible. His mama and his grandma taught him the Bible, Eunice and Lois. You can read it earlier in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He says, since you were a baby, your mama and grandma taught you the Bible. So what? Look at what it goes on to say. Which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith, in Christ Jesus. Here's the first use of the Bible is the Bible leads to Jesus. The Bible leads to Jesus. And that's why we should get excited about this book. The Bible shows us from the very beginning. I want you to think about it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You know what that even situates us as? We are creation, not creator. He was first, then we come. Notice this. I'm going to show you this throughout how we do this. But the Bible constantly shows us our need for God. Our need for God's work in our life. Our need for God's salvation. It's constantly showing our need. From Genesis 1 all the way to the end of Revelation. And it also shows us this. It's dripping from every passage as well. Every time it shows a need of ours, it shows us God's gracious provision. Oh, you have a need? Well, here's how you fulfill that need. And He supplies every passage in some facet shows us our need for Jesus and then how Jesus fulfills our need. Think of it this way, and I'm going to help you learn how to read your Bible. We talk about the Old Testament serving as a type and shadow of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm sitting up here on the stage. This, uh, these lights are casting a shadow here on the floor. And if you were to look at my shadow, the first thing you notice is, man, he's got big ears. That is definitely easy to see. But you wouldn't know how really big they are till you saw me in person, right? But you can get what? An idea of my shape and my form. When you read the Old Testament, the Old Testament is the shadow of the body of Jesus. And what I mean by that is this. In Christ, there are all the heavenly riches, all spiritual blessings. So in the Old Testament, when God blesses or forgives or takes care of a people... They're an outline of ultimately what Jesus would do for you and me. So we're not trying to read the Bible to find Jesus popping out behind every bush. Hey guys, I'm here. What we're saying is this. When we read the Bible from beginning to end, we're looking, where is humanity's need? And where did God meet that need? And every time you answer those questions, what you're going to find, you're actually getting a little closer to Jesus. You're going to get a little closer to the truth about yourself and a little closer to the truth 
about Jesus. Now, let me, let me say a couple of things. It is highly possible, if not probable, that you can read this whole Bible wrong. And Jesus actually says so. He makes it abundantly clear. Listen to John 5.39. Just write this reference down. John 5.39. He's talking to Pharisees who hate Jesus. But the Pharisees knew the Bible better than you and I do. Listen to what it says in John 5.39. Jesus tells them, You pour over the Scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them. Now, I'll read the second half of that verse in a second. Catch what he's saying. He says, you guys are avid Bible students, and your motivation for studying the Bible is this. You know you don't have it all together, and you think by learning more of the Bible and doing it, somehow that will grant you eternal life. It's essentially a works-based or a performance-based religion. You see the Ten Commandments and say, okay, I'll make sure not to do that, and if I don't do that, then what? I'll get into heaven. He goes, you've read it all wrong. That's not how you read your Bible. Listen to what the last half of John 5, 39 says. He says this, and yet they testify about me. So catch what he says. He says, you actually got the part right that you don't have your life all together. And I understand this concept of you trying to do better, but that's not the way to gain eternal life. The Bible is doing this from beginning to end. We all have need of a Savior. We are not the Savior. And the Bible constantly points us to God's gracious provision in Jesus, the Son of God, our Savior and Lord. Jesus alone can save us. He says, that whole book is about me. Ladies and gentlemen, if you read that book from beginning to end and you don't believe in John 3, 16, you miss the point. It's all of it, but it ultimately culminates in repentance of sin, and placing your faith in Jesus alone to save you. And I would implore you today, if you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, there's no reason to read another verse until you know Him. That's what this whole book is about. Finding Jesus, and He's on every page. Can I encourage you about some ways to read your Bible? I want you to, when you read your Bible, pick a verse... Then read it in its context, all right? You can pick any verse and make it say whatever you want it to say. So take a verse, read it in its context, the passages before and after. If you've got enough time, read the, the, the chapters before and after, the books before and after, and read the whole thing if you have time. But ask this question every time you read a verse in its context. Ask these two questions, write it down. What is humanity's need in this verse and passage? Now remember, it's not always going to be some explicit sin. While I say need is this, we have needs because of sin. See, we're living in the fallout and the consequences of sin. Every sickness, I don't mean personally you've sinned, so now you have a personal sickness. I'm saying this, if you see sickness in the Bible, it ultimately comes from what? All the way back in Genesis 3 when humanity sinned against God. So anytime you see death, anxiety, worry, fear, these are all part of sin's domain and humanity's need. Look for it. And then read long enough till you find out God's gracious provision for it. So ask the second question, what is God's provision? What is God's provision? How did God meet that need? All right? From Genesis all the way to Revelation, you can ask those two questions. But you know what? There's more to the Bible than just leading us to Jesus. Primary, it has the preeminence to read the whole Bible and miss Jesus is to miss the whole book. 
But the Bible does more and goes beyond just leading us to Jesus. Look at verse, the, the last half of verse 16 and then into verse 17. I, I'll read it all, but then I'll, I'll, to, I'll show you where to notice. It says, all Scripture is inspired or God-breathed and is profitable, and here you go, for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What is the other use of the Bible besides leading us to Jesus? The second thing is this. The Bible equips for every good work. The Bible equips for every good work. Now church, we don't have time to discuss this today. But one purpose of your personal salvation in Jesus is for you to do good works. We're going to discuss it next week. It is the will of God that you do good. And I'm excited about preaching it to you, but I can't do that right now, or we're going to be here to two. And some of y'all are like, I'm sure that's not God's will for today. Notice the four purposes or uses of the Bible that helps equip us for every good work. The very first thing is teaching. Teaching. It teaches truth. The Bible teaches the truth. It gives us positive doctrine or provides a right understanding about the nature of God, the nature of humanity, the nature of life, meaning morality. And so you can ask, every passage of Scripture will answer one of these four questions, at least one of the four questions I'm about to give you. You can ask this of every verse in its context, ask this, what truth does it teach? What truth does it teach? Is there any positive doctrine? Is there any right understanding that it's sharing with me? So the Bible teaches us to equip us for every good work. Notice the next one. After teaching, what is it? What does your Bible say? Rebuking or correcting. Some of the translations reverse them. All right? But here's what I want you to know. This rebuking, the idea is it exposes error. It confronts false teaching or incorrect beliefs and partial understanding or incomplete thought. I, I've thought about this a lot. I don't think most people err intentionally. I think they err in ignorance with an impartial understanding. They don't get the full picture. We grab a verse, read it out of context, bank on it, and live our lives poorly based on a bad reading of the Bible. And what we need to do is we need to read more of it in context and more of it so that Scripture helps interpret Scripture. Okay? So here's the second question you can ask of every passage. Now, I'm not saying every passage will answer all four. It will at least answer the, the questions about Jesus, what's God, uh, what is humanity's need, what is God's provision, and then it will at least answer one of these four. But the second one is this, what error does it expose? Where does it clarify doctrine? Where does it clarify thinking? Poor Paul had to do this a ton, right? Think about how many times he wrote to a church because they misunderstood something. I'm writing to you again, right? Because I heard this is what you thought I said. I'm writing again to let you know exactly what I'm saying. And this is the wonderful reminder. Can I go ahead and give you some grace for something? If you don't understand something perfectly the first time, what I love about the Bible is it keeps giving you chances. It repeats things. It reminds you of things. Going, hey, I've said this before, but I know how humanity is. Let me say it again. 
So keep reading, keep studying, but what error does it expose? The third one is correcting. Now here's a little bit of a difference between the first two and the last two. Notice how the first two had to deal with our content, the cognitive thought, what we think and believe. The last two has to do with our feelings, our affections, our words and our behavior, how we live our lives. So correcting here is talking about correcting sin. It convicts us of anything that does not please or glorify God. So ask yourself this question about the passage. What sin does it correct? What sin does it correct? And then the fourth and final one is training. Training means to be trained for right living. It's literally like a parent training a child. There's instruction and discipline kind of put together to help them mature. This is training us for right living. It is showing us how to live to please and glorify God. And so you can ask yourself this question of every passage. What right living does it train for? What is it helping me do? What is it encouraging me to do and become? Now let's put it all together. Let's put all this together. I told you this book has come from God, and it's useful. It's useful first and foremost to get you to Jesus, leads to Jesus. Now, I want you to think about this. Two sermons ago, if you can remember, I talked about this from 2 Peter. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to what? Anybody remember? Repentance, that they may be saved, right? Now, here's what I want you to notice. Where did that knowledge of repentance come from? The Word. Last week we talked about sanctification, that second process. Salvation is repentance from sin and faith in Jesus Christ. Upon salvation, the Holy Spirit enters our hearts and begins the process or progress of making our lives conform more to, anybody remember? The Word. Do you see how Word-centered everything God asks us to do is? If you want to know God's will, God's will is found in God's Word. Write that down. That's the big idea. God's will is found in God's Word. Ladies and gentlemen, if that does not move you to pick up your Bible and read it, I, I'm being honest, I don't know what ever will. God's will for your life is contained in this book. Your salvation is wrapped up in it. Your sanctification is wrapped up in it. We want those things. We want to be saved. We want to make progress in our Christian walk, and yet we continue to neglect this book. What do I want you to do? So what? You ready? Real simple. Use it. Use it. Pick up that book. Read that book. Study that book. Do that book, right? You've got to do it. Because it's also possible to be like the Pharisees as well, where you can read all of it, but if you don't do it, do you really know anything? No. You've got to read it all to do it. But I want you to realize this. You can't do what you don't what? No. You can't do the will of God if you don't know the will of God, or you can't know the will of God unless you read the book. You are incomplete without this book. We neglect the Bible at our own peril. We learn our salvation in Jesus from it and our ability to serve, please, and enjoy God and others.
from this book. So let's talk about one last hard conversation about the biblical illiteracy problems both in the pew and in the pulpit. Biblical illiteracy, I'm saying not reading the word, not understanding the word, is the problem for the church today. But here's how we recover. Recovery starts at home and in your personal life. Parents, parents, God commands you in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, that you, you are to teach your children the Bible diligently. That means it's going to require hard work. You cannot franchise your responsibility to other Christians and the church. Start your family devotions today. You say, what do you want me to do, Josh? I don't care if it's you just grabbing your family together or your wife or whoever. If it's just you in home, just take, I'm talking about five minutes. I'll start with just five minutes. If you're doing nothing, start with five minutes of getting into God's Word or a devotion book that helps you understand the Word of God and you read it to your spouse, you read it to your kids. And let me tell you, it will be crazy. My Scotty, oh man, she's always 5,000 miles an hour before devotion time. And I'll sit her down last night. We sat down on, on the, the couch to do our devotions together. We finished the devotion time, and we go to pray. And something odd has been happening. While I've been praying, she's been running away. And I'll always hear her because I'll say, and in Jesus' name, and wherever she's at in the house, she'll go, amen. <laughs> and so I grabbed her hand, and I said, let me pray. And she goes, all right, you pray, I'll hide and seek. And I was like, oh, that's what you think we're doing this now. I just, it hit me last night. I was like, this is not hide and seek. We're just bowing our heads to pray. So it's going to be awkward. It's not perfect. I love to tell you it's pristine and every devotion ends with mom and dad happy. No, it sometimes ends in a fight. But we want to commit ourselves as a family, whether you have a family or not, commit yourself to the Word of God. Because here's what I want you to understand this. In a 2016 study of church-going Protestant parents, Lifeway Research found regular Bible reading as a child was the biggest factor in predicting the spiritual health of a young adult. Moms and dads who take time, I don't mean forcible, they, they turn off the TV, right, for just five, ten minutes, Get their kids together, get the spouse together, and we read the Word of God together. You are showing a discipline that will last for, with your children for ages. And I know for some of y'all, if you haven't been doing it, this is the only thing about sermons like today. You're like, dude, you're going to make it really awkward when I get home. Just go ahead and embrace it. Get in the car and go, it's about to get awkward, but I'm going to do devotions tonight. Just do it. Okay? The same goes for your personal devotion. Start small. Read a verse a day in its context. Ask the set of questions I gave you. Ask those two to six questions and just meditate on it. In your Bible app, and I encourage you this, if you don't have the Bible app, you can still do this. One of the best things that you can do is just read through the book of Proverbs in a month. There's usually there's 31 chapters, about 31 days in a month. You can use that Bible reading plan and the app. You can click on that, start it, sign up today. And if not, here's what I want you to think about Solomon. The beautiful thing about Solomon's wisdom in the book of Proverbs, it's like King Solomon had Twitter. He didn't even know it. Very little context do you need. You just need to be able to read it and meditate on it. 
You don't have to be a Bible scholar for, to read through Proverbs, all right? Please, just start, just start. I want to build in you a habit of engaging the Word of God. Can I get more personal? Don't you find it a little ironic that Christians are more biblically illiterate as fewer Christians attend Sunday school, Sunday night, and Wednesday night service? Just want you to think about the observation. I'm not here to guilt trip you because catch this. Well, Josh, you know the Bible says <laughs> the apostles didn't meet on Wednesday nights. I get it. I get it. Here's all I'm saying. There's a biblical literacy problem. We we've, have we've regular times of Bible teaching, and yet they're poorly attended. And we wonder, wait a minute, I don't know anything about the Bible. All I'm saying, I just want to encourage this, is if you maybe want to enhance your biblical literacy, then just do this. Go to one more service than what you're doing now. Go to one more. Go to Sunday school. Go to Sunday night. Go to Wednesday night. And if you're doing all of them, I'm ready to make you a Sunday school teacher. I just want you to be honest with yourself. And let me tell you this. You go this. And here, here's where I'm going to really push you today. So in the foyer on the table, I have some Bible assessment tests. They're not pass or fail. I don't want you to think if you fail it, Jesus goes, I'm not letting you into heaven. That's not the point of it. But I've got enough back there. Take it home. It's 87 questions on the Bible. On the Bible. And you come back next Sunday night. This Sunday night, we're at Bethlehem. Next Sunday night, if I need to make more available next Sunday morning, next Sunday night, I'll go through it with you. And I'll never look at your score, right? We'll keep it hidden. But I think what you'll find is this. Every single one of us has areas of deficiency. I did that test. I've taken that test like 8,000 times, and there's still two or three that trip me up every time. But all I want you to see, I want you to evaluate your life to go, look, if I'm biblically illiterate, and, and here's the point you say, Josh, what's wrong with biblical illiteracy? Because here's what I do believe. Many believers do not know enough about the Bible to become faithful, mature Christians. That's all I'm saying. You, you have to take in more and then go do more. Take in and do. Take in and do. And if the take in doesn't come up, I mean, if, think about it this, folks. I'm, none of us today are going to go after our Sunday, go after church today, eat Sunday lunch, and not eat till next week. None of us are going to do it. But spiritually, that's what man, many of us will do. All right? Your, and your time in the Word cannot depend upon a preacher. It's a part of it, but it can't be everything. Okay? Let me speak to another group. Sunday school teachers. I just want to say this. I don't mean this mean. I'm not trying to guilt you. We have the privilege of teaching the Word of God. Do you hear me? We have the privilege of teaching the Word of God. And with gentleness and respect, it comes with eternal consequences. It is worth your study. It is worth your preparation. And can I say this? Can you be excited about it? Don't come in drudgery. And I thought to myself, I almost was going to make this deal with you. Like, if you can't do it that way, don't do it at all. No, fix it. Stop waiting until minutes to midnight on Saturday night to look at your lesson. The Word of God and the people of God deserve our best. And I'm not saying that every time we preach, oh man, we always pick a sermon as it's green. I would love to say, oh, this is super ripe. It's going to just blow the house out today. 
But I want to be able to stand before Jesus and say, given the time and resource and the ability that I had, I did the best of what I could with it. And if you can look yourself in the mirror after Sunday school and say you did that, then I, be, I pat you on the back and I do applaud you. But all I'm saying is this, make sure you can have that kind of philosophy and approach every Sunday. We're handling the Word of God for the people of God. And then I want to say a, a word to parents about church. Too many youth ministries especially are asked to provide entertainment, which I don't have a problem with. But I will say this, while we want our students to have fun and fellowship with their peers, I mean, Aaron and I have talked about this, we want our next-gen ministry to produce substantial Bible knowledge in the next generation. We do. And that part we'll be unapologetic about. We want them to have fun. We don't want to be like, don't take me to church. Please don't take me. At the same time, our priority number one is not entertaining your kids. We're here to instill and engraft the word of God because we want to reverse this trend in that generation. In the days when street preachers were a common sight in New York City, a man named Charlie King would sometimes be running around a hat which was placed on the street corner near Times Square. And he would shout, it's alive! It's alive! And when a crowd gathered, he'd pick up that hat, and under it, there's a Bible. And he'd preach the gospel from it. At about the same time, a Christian organization in New York City that evangelized high school students was encouraging Christian students, however embarrassing it was to them, to carry a Bible with a red cover on top of their school books. Much like the way Drew Brees and Focus on the Family are advocating for. Every one of these attempts, whether it's the hat, the red cover, Drew and Focus on the Families, Bring Your Bible to School Day, every one of these attempts try to demonstrate and proclaim the value of the Bible. But can I tell you something? Unless we preach, teach, listen, read, study, and obey the Bible, we will never give this book its due. Never. Thanks for listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. Please join us this Sunday at 11 a.m. To plan your visit, go to mtcarmeldemarest.com.